couple times this service, so buckle up, everybody. It's coming. When I was a kid, I would sometimes stay up past my bedtime reading some Hardy Boys mystery or some other kind of cliffhanger type book. And in each of these books, there's always at least one climactic scene where the outcome is uncertain and the survival of the main characters is in jeopardy. And so, unable to bear that suspense, I did what any reader with no taste for literary tension at that time of night would do. I skipped to the end. The end of the chapter, or sometimes the end of the book, because I just couldn't take it. I had to know, before returning back to where I was, into the thick of the story, if everything was going to be all right. Does this story have a happy ending? Are the characters going to make it? Because if I can get an understanding of the big picture, if I can see the whole story, then I can be comforted in the parts that are difficult that are suspenseful, that are scary, and that are uncertain. So this morning, we will be continuing our study through Isaiah. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 40. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, I would encourage you not only to grab the copy that's in the seat in front of you, but to take it home with you today as our gift to you. No member of this church is going to be angry if we have to spend more money to buy more Bibles because we gave all of ours away. So please take it. You can find Isaiah chapter 40 on page 599 of the Bibles in the row in front of you. And astute observers may notice that the title that's behind me is different than the title that's on the program in front of you. That's because between the time the program needed to be finished and this morning, I realized that wasn't really what I was trying to say. So, sorry about that, but we're going to move forward with it. If you're new here or um, if you're new to the book of Isaiah, let me briefly set the stage for us this morning. Up until now, the book of Isaiah has dealt with the threat of Assyria coming to conquer Judah after Assyria already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. God has already foretold to Judah this looming destruction and exile that will happen to them for their rebellion against him. But up until this point, he has delivered the nation of Judah. They have not yet been conquered. Here in chapter 40, however, the prophecy shifts from the present to the future. And it shifts from condemnation to comfort. Instead of talking about the impending judgment, Isaiah begins to prophesy to Judah about when they return from that exile, of when their judgment is over. And the Lord reconciles his people back to himself. So with that background in mind, Let's read together from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. God's word says to us, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. 
and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort that you bring to us through your word. And Father, I pray this morning that that would be the case, that we would see in your word the heart of a God who loves us, the heart of a God who cares for us and who is with us in all things. Lord, may the words that I speak be faithful to your word and may they be encouraging to your saints this morning. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want us to see today is how these words in Isaiah chapter 40 are meant to comfort God's people throughout all time. And they do that by revealing the whole story to those who are living in the midst of it. So as we look at this grand story together, I want to focus on three specific parts this morning. First, the author. Second, the main character. And third, the happy ending. So first, let's take a look at the author. As I said earlier, this scene in Isaiah 40 is a sudden shift into a time when the people of Judah will return from their captivity to Babylon. Historically, that won't happen for another 150 years after Isaiah dies. So what's going on here? God is comforting Isaiah's contemporary hearers with the promise of future restoration, even as they face the prospect of future exile. He's already providing a glimpse of the end to give strength to those who are about to be in the middle of the trial. And as the first two words of this passage make clear, the entire passage is supposed to be comforting. It's supposed to be a comfort to the people of God. Since we know that this story has a happy ending, we can trust the author in the middle of it. So what does God's word say to comfort his people? Let's look at verse 2 again. He says, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So before they even head into exile, God is promising his people that there will be a time when their hardship is over and when their sins are forgotten. So like me, in reading these suspenseful books, God is allowing them to see the end so that they can live confidently in the midst of the trials that are to come. Yes, they will be conquered. Yes, they will go into exile, but there will be a point when their warfare is over and when their sins are forgiven. That doesn't mean that what lies ahead of them is a walk in the park. There will be real suffering. There will be death. There will be destruction. Their city is going to be invaded. Their friends and their family will be killed. Their temple will be destroyed. And they will be carted off to a foreign land to be slaves, trampled underfoot by the upper classes of their captors. But that's not even the worst part. In the first chapter of Hosea, who prophesied around the same time as Isaiah, the prophet reports God saying to Israel, You are not my people and I am not your God. These are incredibly strong words for the people of Israel to heal, to hear, but they reveal the depth of the covenant curses that they have earned by their rebellion against God. Their sin has made a separation between them 
and their God. And God's displayed his mercy to them time after time. But now the justice of God must be enacted and the promised curses of his covenant with them must come to pass. But notice the way that Isaiah 40 verse 1 is phrased. For all of the encouragement to be found in these proclamations of hope in verse 2. Perhaps the sweetest part of this passage for Isaiah's hearers was actually in verse 1, where the Lord says, my people and your God. Though God is allowing these covenant curses to befall the people of Judah as a result of their sin, he is reminding them, even before it happens, of his character, which is that he is a faithful God. His covenant is everlasting, and even after these curses take place, he will remain faithful to his people. They will come out on the other side of this exile, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. He does not forget them. He does not cast them aside. It's not hard to understand the suffering that the people of Judah are facing here, that Isaiah is preparing them for. But here in Isaiah 40, God is already providing comfort before that happens. He's telling them, I will not forsake you. I will be faithful to my covenant with you. Before they go into the fire, he is reminding them of what kind of God he is. Do you feel that this morning? Often we are tempted to let our circumstances dictate our view of God instead of the other, the other way around. If you look around, there is so much suffering. Sickness and death and depression and anxiety and racial strife and political discord and economic uncertainty, fractured relationships and broken families. We experience or at least see all of these around us on an almost daily basis. And if you find yourself establishing your understanding of God based on what's going on around you, then you're going to wind up with a God who is either evil, powerless, or both. How could God let these things happen? Why doesn't he stop them? One of my favorite movies is called Stranger Than Fiction. And it's about a man who one day, out of nowhere, starts hearing a voice in his head. And this voice is describing the events of his life as if he is the main character in a novel. And this voice is the narrator. He goes to a psychiatrist who diagnoses him with schizophrenia, but he says, that can't be right. This voice isn't telling me to do anything. It's just describing what I'm already doing with a vocabulary that's better than mine. Eventually, he hears the narrator's voice on the television, and he discovers that it belongs to a famous author. She is the one, seemingly, who is writing this story in which he is the main character. The problem, as he discovers, is that this author is famous for always killing her protagonists. That's her trademark. Her characters always die at the end of her books. So now, he has to find a way to find her and to get her to change the ending before she writes the final period. Because he knows the author, he's confident about the way that the story is going to go. And just as Isaiah's hearers are assured by knowing the author of their story, so we too can have confidence in the knowledge of our God. We know what kind of stories our God writes. 
And unlike the author of the movie, our author writes stories of life and hope. If we let our circumstances dictate what we believe about God, there will always be reason for despair. But if we let our knowledge of God's character inform the way that we view the circumstances around us, we can have hope even in the midst of the most severe trials. Now, I do not understand why God allows so many of the trials that happen in our lives. I will not stand up here and say, let me tell you the reason, because I don't know. Only God does. But fixing our eyes on our God instead of our circumstances allows us to trust that this, yes, even this that you are going through right now is the providence of a good God who loves you and cares for you and can be trusted in all circumstances. But what does that look like in our daily lives? It looks like regularly and intentionally returning to God's word to remind ourselves of the character of our God so that we can live with hope in the midst of difficult circumstances. The Bible is full of examples of God showing himself as faithful and merciful and generous and loving and kind and steadfast in situations that look exactly like the one that you are experiencing right now. So when you're let go of your job and you don't know how you can pay your bills, remember the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The Lord knows what you need and he will provide it even if you don't see how. Or when you feel like you keep fighting a losing battle with sin and you wonder why God hasn't taken this temptation away from you, hold fast to the promise that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He won't forget you now. God wants that sin gone more than you do. So you can trust him in this process. And when you find yourself doubting God's goodness and God's provision and his presence with you, cling to the words of Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now, hear me when I say, I am not advocating slapping a Bible verse on a deep wound and calling it fixed. This is not taking verses out of context to fit random situations. This is not ignoring the difficulties of life and clinging to a blind faith. In fact, there's an entire genre of biblical literature devoted to asking God why the situations around us seem not to reflect the character that he has revealed. The heart cry of the Psalms of Lament is asking questions like, God, If you said that you're always with me, why do I feel so alone? Or God, if you hear me, why have you not answered my prayers? And while our initial reaction to questions like that might be like, that's unbiblical, we can't say that. The Psalms of Lament actually display a great knowledge of and confidence in the character of our God. And the more we grow in understanding the author whose story we live in, the more we can trust him as we see it unfolding or 
the more we can come to him and ask him to give us eyes to see how he is patient and loving and kind and good when things do not appear that way. What I'm encouraging is regularly and intentionally reminding yourself who God is and what he's done for us in Christ and allowing that truth to dictate the way that you understand and the way that you interpret the situations that God has put you in. The Lord has given us his entire word, plus the lives of countless saints before us, plus examples of his own faithfulness in our own lives in the past. Ample evidence that he can be trusted, even and especially in times of confusion and hardship and pain. What greater comfort can we have than knowing that the author of this story is good and kind and loving and merciful? That was a great comfort to God's people in Judah, and it is a great comfort for us today. Interestingly, in Luke 2, which happens about 500 years after the exiles return from Babylon back to Judah, we meet a godly man named Simeon in the temple complex in Jerusalem. And he is waiting for God's promised Messiah. And Luke, in his account of this event, describes it as waiting for the consolation of Israel. So although the Lord has brought his people back, he has been faithful to them to return them from exile, it appears that the comfort that is promised to his people in verse 1 has not yet been fully realized. Remember, God says, comfort Comfort my people in the first words of this passage, but it appears that hundreds of years later, that still hasn't happened. And that brings us to our second point, the main character. So back in January, some of you may remember, I preached a sermon on Isaiah chapter 35, which is only five chapters before this one. For reference, let me read a bit of that passage to you. It says, For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. So I have to admit that the first time I read Isaiah chapter 40 in preparation for today, I was like, wow, that's really similar. (laughs) Am I just going to preach the same sermon again? Uh, Maybe if I did, I wouldn't cry as much this time as I did last time, but generally preaching the same sermon to the same group of people is frowned upon. So I had to think through, why are these two things here? Why are these two passages here that seem so similar? And while there's no question that these two passages share a lot of similarities, I think there's an essential difference in these descriptions that makes all the difference in the way that we're supposed to understand them. So in Isaiah 35, the way of holiness, the highway that's described in the desert, is for the ransomed of the Lord to return and come to Zion with singing. It's for God's people. The Lord himself establishes this road for his people to come home from their exile and return to their covenant inheritance, which is the promised land. So with that in mind, Turn with me to verse 3 of Isaiah 43. Let's read it together again. Or Isaiah 40, sorry. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. So who is this road for? It's actually the opposite of the road in Isaiah chapter 35. This is not a road for God's people. This is a road for their God. Instead of God making a way for his people to return to Jerusalem, now God's people are supposed to make way for him to return to dwell with them. So who is this main character of the story that our God is writing? It's not you. It's not me. It's not the kingdoms of Israel or Judah or Babylon. It's not America. It's not David or Hezekiah or Isaiah. It's God himself. It is the true king. He is the main character of this story that unfolds through the pages of Scripture and history. The image that Isaiah is evoking here in verses 3 and 4 is that of a king traveling to another city from his capital, from his palace. And it would be common practice in this time for kings to send groups of people before them to prepare the way for the journey. The number one job here would be to establish a flat, straight, unobstructed road through dangerous and treacherous terrain so that the king could travel on it. As R.C. Sproul put it, he said, build a road, knock down the hills, dig a tunnel if necessary, fill in all the ditches, make the road straight because it's going to be the highway of a king. So the call here in Isaiah is to remove every obstacle in preparation for the Lord returning to dwell again with his people, even after their covenant disobedience led his presence to depart from them. So those familiar with the Bible probably recognized at least verse 3 of this chapter, where he says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You may have thought, I've heard that before. That sounds really familiar. But the question is where? Where else have you heard it in God's word? And I feel like the question that we need to ask ourselves then is when did God return to dwell among his people? When did what was being prophesied here happen? This passage promises that even after the Babylonians come and destroy the temple and God's presence departs from his people, he will come again to dwell with them in Jerusalem once more. Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, but keep your finger in Isaiah 40 because we're coming back. What's happening in John chapter 1 is that John the Baptist is out in the desert baptizing people. It says all of Judea was out being baptized. So he was a very popular preacher. And he's out here baptizing people And the religious leaders of the day don't like how popular he is. So the religious leaders send a group of people out to question him and figure out what he's doing and why he is there. So John 1, let's read together starting in verse 22. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? 
He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. So by the time John the Baptist comes on the scene, the second temple has been there for 600 or so years. The Babylonians destroyed the first one, but Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel built another temple. So it's been there for 600 years. So when it was rebuilt, that was when God returned to dwell among his people, right? It has to be. That's the dwelling place of God among his people. That has to be what Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3 is talking about. Actually, many scholars believe that the Lord's presence never indwelt the second temple. He never returned to dwell in the temple that was rebuilt after the Babylonians destroyed it. The covenant curses of God's people, of his presence departing with them, departing from them, continued even after their exile was ended because the Lord had not returned to dwell among them. So the priests and Levites in John 1 are thinking, the temple's rebuilt. God is here with us. What are you talking about? But John the Baptist is insisting Isaiah 40 verse 3 hasn't happened yet. Again, R.C. Sproul is helpful. He says, God promised that someday the king's highway would be built and the king would enter into the midst of his people. But by quoting this passage from Isaiah, John is saying, that's who I am. I am the voice. I am here to tell you this highway has yet to be built. It still needs to be built. And so what John is saying is he is calling God's people, now prepare the way of the Lord. He is coming to dwell among you, but not in a magnificent building. He is coming to dwell among you in human flesh. God returns to his people to dwell with them in Jerusalem as a man named Jesus. He's the main character of this story, and here he is making his debut. Jesus is the king coming into the city. That's why everyone acts the way that they do at the triumphal entry. That's why they put their cloaks on the road. That's why they put down the palm branches, because they're preparing the way of the king as he enters into Jerusalem. They're making the road suitable for a king to travel on. Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, is the fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verses 3 and 4. The presence of the Lord returned to dwell among his people, though it looks astonishingly different than what many anticipated. But he didn't just come to be with his people. He came on a mission. As the main character of the story, this is where the main plot happens. This is the climax of the story the core of the drama as Jesus Christ, God himself, comes to dwell among his people. I mentioned Simeon before who knew that the comfort spoken of in Isaiah 40 verse 1 had not yet happened. So when he saw the baby Jesus in the temple, Luke tells us, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus' mission is one of salvation. He did not just come to dwell, he came to save. But what does that salvation look like? What are we saved from? Flip back to Isaiah 40, and let's take a look at verse 2 again. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, 
that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Through his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his triumphant resurrection from the grave, Jesus did for his people what we could never do for ourselves. First, see in verse 2, our warfare is ended. You don't have to live long as a human to recognize that much of our lives here on earth is a battle. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, our whole experience in this world is one of discord and one of strife. And though we battle against a number of things in this fallen world, the biggest areas of conflict come between ourselves and other people and ourselves and our God. All sin is cosmic rebellion and a waging of war against the creator and sustainer of all things. And that sin then pits us against our fellow image bearers as well. But Jesus has put an end to our warfare. As we just read earlier in the service, Paul reminds the church in Ephesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is what? He is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers, and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. It's hard to miss the message of peace in that passage. Did you hear this beautiful double message that we have, peace through Christ Jesus? So most importantly, we have been made right with God. We who once were far off have been brought near into a peaceful relationship with our God through Jesus Christ, who is himself our peace. And because of that, any divisions that exist between God's people are erased. Since we have been reconciled to God and brought into the same body through Jesus Christ, made fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God, how, how can we let our pet preferences And our little disputes stand in the way of peace that God himself has created. For anyone who is here this morning who's holding a grudge against a fellow image bearer of God, who refuses to let go of a past offense, whether it's a harsh comment or a missed event, an unfortunate misunderstanding or something that's happened probably far too often this past year, a tasteless Facebook post. Whatever it may be, if we divide ourselves from another person made in the image of God, especially another member of your local church, because of a past offense, then it reveals a misunderstanding of the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are not practicing and living in the truth of the gospel, and we're misrepresenting the truth of the gospel to a watching world around us. 
our warfare is ended. Let us not pick it back up. As image bearers of God, one of the ways that we display the character of our God is how we interact with one another. So when we're divisive or bitter or dismissive or harsh or unforgiving, what does that say about the God in whose image we are made and of whose body we are a part? But on the other side, what a beautiful gift when we are able through our words and our actions and our encouragements and our time together to participate in the process of reminding one another of the good, faithful, patient, forgiving, caring, loving author of our story. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us, so if you are offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Jesus takes this so seriously that he insists you cannot worship God rightly until you are made right with your neighbor. Is there someone that you need to forgive or someone from whom you need to ask forgiveness this morning? Let me encourage you to not let it wait. Our right worship of God, even this morning, depends in being right with our neighbor and having a right relationship with those around us. If the Lord has forgiven us so much, how can we withhold forgiveness to those who have grieved us so comparatively little? Christ died to bring unity in the church. Let us not cheapen his death by trying to undo what he has bought at the highest price. Second, our warfare is ended because, as verse 2 says, our iniquity is pardoned. The very rebellion that we engaged in against God has been forgiven. But God is just, and he cannot just let sin go unpunished. So the iniquity was not forgotten. It was paid for completely. The language of the last part of verse 2 is kind of confusing. It says, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So on a first reading, it definitely might seem like the Lord exacted twice as much payment as was necessary from the people of Judah for their sins. Now we just said God is just, and that sounds incredibly unjust. But in fact, the Hebrew word that underlies this English translation double in this verse refers to the process of folding something in half so that you have two perfect sides. You have one half and then you have its double on the other side. So the verse could be rendered, she has received from the Lord's hand the exact match for all of her sins. So payment has been made perfectly and it has been made completely in God's perfect justice, he demanded the suitable covenant punishment for his people's disobedience. But in his perfect mercy, he suffered that punishment himself so that his people would never have to. And the way that that happened was through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. He came to save his people from their sins by taking these covenant curses upon himself and suffering exile from the presence of God 
in their place. He came so that the punishment of the Babylonian exile that the people of Judah are just looking forward to will never have to happen again for those who love him and put their faith in him for salvation. Now the punishment for sin still exists for those who have not placed their faith in Christ. God has told us how that story ends as well. And it is an internal separation from him. There is no return from exile. There is no promise of God's loving, comforting, delivering presence for those who have not trusted in Christ. But this morning, hear these words clearly. The offer of salvation is open to you. It is open to all. Will you hear it this morning? Will you recognize your own warfare against God and ask him for the peace that comes only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Salvation is offered to all today. The Lord has come to dwell among his people. That was Jesus' mission. He came to deal once and for all with that which separates us from God. That is the end of the story. When you look at the end of your life, what do you envision? Maybe to grow old with your spouse or to be surrounded by children and grandchildren. Is it to retire and move to Florida or spend the rest of your days playing golf, going to bingo night, and eating dinner at 4.30? Hopefully, our desire would be to continue to grow in our love and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ more and more through the rest of our years. But whatever our final days may hold, whatever they look like, the Lord has already told us what will happen after we breathe our final breath. Our King has come. Our warfare is over. Our iniquity is pardoned. Christ has paid for it all. And by seeing the way that the author has written the story of the main character, as we see this plot unfold, we can have confidence in our own final chapters. We can have confidence in the story that our God is writing for us. And that brings us to our last point, the happy ending. If I may be so bold, I'd like to suggest that we actually haven't fully exhausted the predictions of this particular passage. As one commentator put it, given that no return from Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome ever came anywhere close to fully ending Israel's hard service, paying for its sins or leveling, even metaphorically, all its rugged places, and certainly no event prior to Christ's coming ever revealed the glory of the Lord to all humanity, it seems reasonable to suggest that Isaiah had a distant, grander fulfillment in mind as well. I think there's three different layers Isaiah is pointing to here in chapter 40. We've already looked at the first one, which was the return of the Jewish exiles from Babylon. And we just covered the second, which was the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But there's one more period of time that I think Isaiah is referring to here. And it's to that final one that we turn our attention now. Look at verse 5. And all the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
So the idea of all flesh seeing the glory of the Lord has a very distinct end times feel to it. When we read phrases like that in the Bible, that's where our mind should go. to say, oh, they're speaking of the end times here. And so we see these clues in Isaiah, and we see this mirrored in other places in God's Word. Jesus speaks in Mark of his return when he says, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And the first chapter of Revelation says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. So here in Isaiah 40, God isn't just speaking about the end of the Babylonian exile or the end of our Christian lives, but the very end of all things. He's showing us the end of the big story of which all of these other stories are just a small part. And this end will be when all flesh, not just Israel, not just the church, but all people behold the glory of the Lord as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is when the Lord will return and dwell with his people as he promised in a way that he has not since the Garden of Eden, face to face. Have you ever watched a Hallmark movie? Even though the small town family farm was about to be bought up by a big city businessman and turned into an industrial park, the townspeople rallied around their beloved neighbors and saved the farm. The married couple rediscovers their true love for one another, even though their jobs, their family, and the craziness of life threatened to pull them apart. The little girl almost lost the spirit of Christmas, but her dad made it home to be there on Christmas morning, even from hundreds of miles away, in the worst blizzard the town has seen in a hundred years. You want to know a secret? I didn't look up any of those plots. I made them up. But chances are, Hallmark has made all of those movies. <laughs> the reason I can do that is because they're so predictable. There's always a happy ending. No matter what happens in the first 75 minutes of the movie, the last 15 minutes redeem it all. All is right in the world when the credits start rolling. And I think the reason why these movies are so popular and why they affect us so much is because we as humans are hardwired for happy endings. We feel the tension and the struggle of this world, and we think to ourselves, there has to be a plan. This all has to work out in the end. And that's not an accident that we think that. That's built into us as those who are made in the image of God. Deep down, we know that our Creator has a plan for this universe, and we're eager to see it come true in accordance with His character. We seek the good end that God has ordained for His grand story of redemption. Ever since the Romans sacked Jerusalem in AD 70 and scattered the people all throughout the Roman Empire, a new saying and a new practice entered into Jewish culture and religious observances. Specifically, at the end of the Passover Seder, those gathered together will sing together next year in Jerusalem. So even today, Jewish communities all over the world, in Spain and Canada 
and Brazil and China and Australia and Egypt, everywhere that's not Jerusalem, all finish their Passover Seder by expressing a hope that next year they will be together. They will celebrate Passover together with their people in their city. Traditional Jewish theology says that although the temple was destroyed twice, it will be rebuilt one more time, which will usher in the Messianic era and will bring back all of the exiles from all over the earth back to Jerusalem. There's this idea here of shalom, the perfect peace that comes from God's people dwelling together in his presence in a place where all is right and all is at rest. One of my favorite musicians, Andrew Peterson, has a song called Maybe Next Year, which was inspired by this particular Jewish saying and Jewish practice. He basically says that Christians have the same desire, that same hope that soon and very soon we will all be together in Jerusalem, worshiping in the presence of our God. The major difference is that the Jewish people have the wrong Jerusalem in mind. Their focus is too short-sighted. Instead, in the words of Peterson's songs, we look forward to that city that we long for, that we feel so far away, where the dawn will drive away our tears, and we'll meet in the new Jerusalem someday, maybe next year. Revelation 21, 2 and 3 says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Does that sound familiar? This is the final stage of God's unfolding plan of redemption and the final and eternal way that he will come to dwell with his people. This is the end of the story, and it is good. In the same way that God's words in verse 2 of Isaiah 40 are meant to comfort those who are about to head into exile while they suffer their trial, and the same way that they're meant to comfort us as we look toward the end of our lives and whatever the Lord has ordained for the rest of our days, so too these words are meant to direct our gaze forward to the final covenant promises of our God. We are not anticipating God building another temple because it was done away with in the person of Jesus Christ and in his body, the church. But we are looking forward to a time when God will dwell again with his people face to face. We are looking forward to the new Jerusalem where all of the exiles from every tribe and every tongue and every nation on earth will be brought together into the city of the Lord and will praise him together. Do you see the beautiful story that this good author has written? Do you see how it reflects his covenant faithfulness to his people? Do you see what a loving and compelling main character this story has who has done for us what we never could do for ourselves? I want to encourage us this morning that the grand story our God has written 
should instill forward-looking confidence in God's people that he will be faithful to his promise. We should yearn deeply for the Lord to return and to usher us into his perfect presence forever. Are you struggling with addiction and feel like its grip on you is so strong that you will never defeat it? Do you feel yourself falling deeper and deeper into the dark pit of depression? Do you ache with loneliness and feel like there's no one who knows you and there's no one who loves you deeply? Do you fear sickness, sorrow, pain, or death? Does that overwhelm you and steal your joy and your hope every day? Let me encourage you this morning to lift up your eyes to the glorious future that awaits you. We have seen the end of the story, brothers and sisters, and it is good. There will be no more yearning. There will be no more unmet desires as we are completely satisfied in the presence of our God. There will be no sadness or sorrow or pain or grief. We will be fully known and fully loved by our creator, savior, and sustainer. God has shown us how this story ends. And this knowledge is meant to comfort us and make us yearn for that end to come soon. Though we continue to struggle, though we continue to fight, though we live in this world as exiles, hear the words of our God for us this morning. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Through the finished work of Christ on our behalf, we may look forward to the eternal kingdom of God in all of its glory. Verse 5 concludes, The mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Lord has said that he will do this. Do you trust him? He has given us the end of the story that we may be faithful and hopeful even in the midst of it. Do you believe it? The good author of our story has shown us how it ends that we may be encouraged while we're in the midst of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a good author who writes good stories. And Lord, we have seen in your word that though the path may be winding, though the valley may be dark, we have seen the end of the story and it is good and it is glorious. Father, give us the strength to trust you in the midst of the trial. Give us the uh, ability to remind ourselves of what kind of author you are. Lord, let us be quick to remember your promises and remember what you have done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we be united. May we remember that you have reconciled us to yourself once and for all. And may the words of this passage, may all that is said and sung and prayed and read this morning be an encouragement to our hearts as we leave. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.